Hello and welcome to the Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity and Resource Efficiency, and Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis. If you joined us for our previous episodes, you'll know that we are co-hosting a short series of podcasts that uses informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sector through the lens of women. We are inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we are excited to be joined by Jane Beavis, Executive Chair and Director of OnPack Recycling Label, otherwise known as OPRL. Welcome, Jane. It's great to have you as our guest here today. So Jane and I have worked together for years during her time at OPRL and our paths have crossed on multiple projects in the past. But recently I got back in touch with Jane during the pandemic because I needed some information on a project on flexible packaging. And I thought Jane was just the person who would have that at her fingertips. She's always been a brilliant collaborator. She's always shared her thoughts and she's always been great with information and connections with other networks. So I thought that that might bring some interesting discussion for us in the Wise Women in Waste podcast. So I was saying to Jane when I caught up with her in the pandemic, how sad it was that we just hadn't got to see each other in person at industry events or any conferences and how it had been almost 18 months since she and I had probably seen each other in person. And it was then that I was sort of explaining to her what the back ground to wise women in waste was and why we built this podcast so that we could try to bring some of that networking and connectivity into people's lives while we were all working remotely. And I was delighted when Jane agreed that she would join us to talk a little bit more about her experience and to bring us up to date on some of the hot topics around product labeling for end of life recycling and some consumer insights and behavior work that she'd been involved in and was aware of about driving that behavior change for pro-recycling consumer engagement. So I'm sure that you're going to enjoy listening to her today. And Jane, it's my great honour to welcome you. Please, could you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your background and about how your career has evolved through waste and into circular economy industry throughout your career? Well, if you'd asked me 40 years ago, would I be doing what I'm doing now? I think I probably would have looked at you in disbelief. I trained as an agricultural scientist and worked initially doing field trials on potatoes and arable break crops. So always had an interest in environmental issues, but never really thought about waste and recycling as a sector I'd likely to be involved in. So I spent 20 years first as a scientific civil servant and then moving across into policy areas. My last job actually was at the Treasury looking at how to reform the common agricultural policy to make it more environmentally friendly. Didn't think that we in Britain would come up with a solution we did to that at that point. I then moved into the world of trade associations, firstly to the Association of British Insurers and got very involved in policy on climate change, which obviously is an issue insurers worry about a lot. And that introduced me to a whole raft of new issues that I hadn't previously sort of been engaged with. Seven years on, I moved to the British Retail Consortium, continued work on climate change, but also got very involved in sustainable supply chains And obviously, packaging is a big issue for retailers and brands, 
not least because their customers raise it as an issue and it's a way for them to engage in meaningful conversations with their customers. And that's where we set up OPRL and that's what led me into this world. Thank you so much. And can you tell me a bit more about OPRL and, and how you get the logo and what does it mean and what does it do? Sure. So we started out really looking at how to support consumers in recycling at home. And it was very much focused on the recycling services that councils provide. This was back in 2008, 2009, when recycling was still sort of in its infancy in the UK, really. Lots of variations between different councils and lots of confusion amongst consumers about what they could do. So we worked with RAP and the brands and retailers to come up with a little prompt that could go on packaging that helped consumers understand whether this was something that could be recycled or shouldn't be recycled. And at that stage, that meant, can I put it in my recycling bin or not? We've, we've moved on a lot since then. So we actually look at the whole recycling process and whether MRFs and PERFs can actually sort that packaging and whether it actually ends up being turned into recycled and used. So ISO 14021 compliant assessments. And for brands and retailers wanting to be a part of this and put that label on their packaging, then we're a membership organisation. They sign up and pay an annual fee and that gives them access not just to the artwork, but to the rules base and evidence base and some online tools we've got to help them actually understand which label they should be using. But we've also broadened our membership. So actually, we have the whole packaging value cycle from materials producers all the way through to waste management companies and reprocessors so that actually we're a community of all the organisations that understand about the technical issues that sit behind a very simple label. That is really useful. And what does the OPR label look like? So listeners recognise it because I know we got an an international audience as well. So maybe describe it a bit. And what about your members who produce for other markets? Sure. So because this started out as a very close collaboration with RAP, who produce what is known in the UK as the Recycle Now swoosh, it's a little circular arrow with a heart for the arrowhead on it. That's central to the design of our labels. And that's quite specific to the UK because UK consumers understand that symbol as meaning recycling here. In fact, the logic behind our labels and what they're trying to achieve proved of interest internationally. So schemes like How to Recycle in North America, the Australasian recycling label in Australia and New Zealand, the so-called Woolworths label in South Africa, and now there's a label launching in Singapore as well, have used that sort of same approach, but they use the Mobius loop instead of the Recycle Now swoosh. And what is the latest on your plans and getting that label out and therefore encouraging people to recycle? And I think maybe also get critical mass in some markets, because often it's not just the ability, but also having sufficient amounts to make it worthwhile and then linking back into recycling. 
Sure. So as I say, we launched in 2009. We had the backing of the big supermarkets and lots of the big grocery brands at that point, which meant the label was out there on people's packaging from a very early point. We now got 95% of multiple groceries retailers in membership and 94 of the top 100 groceries brands. So people will be used to seeing it in the UK, but won't associate it with us. It's the label and the action that it inspires that counts. We're keen to expand into any sector that uses consumer packaging, basically. So we've got quite a lot of DIY and health and beauty members and moving across into all sorts of different sectors there. And what comes first, the material, the logo or the recycling systems? Well, that's a good question. So we have, as I mentioned, a three-part assessment. One looks at what proportion of councils will collect that packaging. And that's a combination of the material and the type of packaging. So, for example, PET bottles are very widely collected by pretty much all UK councils now, but there's still some councils that don't collect PET pots, tubs and trays, for example. So it's not just the material, it's also the format. But we also work closely with the waste management sector to look at can they sort things properly? So it might be the right format and the right material, but somebody's used carbon black in it. So the sensors at the sorting plant can't detect it. So that would make that particular bit of packaging uh, not recyclable. Or it might be welded to an incompatible polymer, or it might have PVC wrapper around it, which makes it undetectable. So What sounds like a really simple idea actually ends up being multifaceted and quite complex. And that's why we have our online tools there to help people come to the right conclusions. So, Jane, I just wanted to have a quick chat with you about how you go about adding new labels or new materials into the scheme. Because I know when we worked together before, we had a conversation with you about a successful outcome, actually, adding the labels to coffee cups. So it'd be great just to hear a little bit more about the process that you go through when new materials either come onto the market or when, you know, you're doing an assessment for their recyclability. Yeah, so I guess there's two different situations. One is where some changes have been made to packaging design or a novel material and the local authorities can collect it. And so it's relatively straightforward to add our existing standard labels to those. And that's when we take the evidence and take it to our technical advisory committee, which is made up of industry experts from all around the packaging cycle, but also academics as well. And so that will depend on are the right number of local authorities collecting it? Can Murphs and Perps cope with it? Is it actually going to a market of any value at the end of that? And the second then is a material which maybe local authorities struggle to cope with or needs to go through a more dedicated collection stream because it has to go to specialist processing and coffee cups was a really good example of that and so there we're looking to check the same data but we have to do it in a different way so it was you know what was the number and distribution of recycling points in coffee stores and did that serve 
the UK population broadly and that they weren't just being collected and then disposed of, but that was actually going through a recycling process. We did that for coffee cups. We've recently done it for some of the coffee pods that people use with a retailer. We're currently working on broadening the range of plastic bags and wraps that can be taken back to supermarkets. Big question at the moment that we're working on is, can we include metallized films in that or not? And there we're working with industry partners to see what can the system cope with and what it can't. And at the end of that process, you then make a judgment as to whether those criteria are met and you issue a new label accordingly. Is that right? Yes, it might be a new label or in the case of films, for example, we've had a label for PE films for years. So it would be saying that that label can now be applied to a wider range of polymers. And you're doing some work at the moment with government around the mandatory labelling. And I think it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about some of the information that you're looking to receive feedback on. So we, knowing that the second round of consultations was coming up earlier this year, we did a new piece of consumer insight work with over 5,100 consumers across GB to really sort of dig down and understand what it was, why they got engaged and what it was that they understood about what they were seeing. And that came back very clearly that they found this array of different symbols really difficult to understand, but that three out of five of them, so three times more than any other symbol, and actually six times more than things like the Mobius Loop, consumers understood that label. So we're very clear that we've got a successful solution and that's what we need to build on. And it does link because it's got the Recycle Now swoosh at the heart of the design. It links to other local authority communications about recycling. So it really reinforces those broader behaviours. And obviously, the Recycle Now swoosh is RAP's IP. So that's a discussion that RAP needs to be involved in. But what we put to government is that we need to build on that already recognised symbol, that it doesn't matter how that's delivered, whether that's multiple schemes or a single mandatory scheme, whatever the government decides to move forward with. And that means that we're willing to share that design with what would be our competitors in a new world, because that is the right thing to do to promote recycling here in the UK. Yeah, I think that is super useful. And especially one of my key areas is the novel or the advanced plastics recycling processes and novel sorting processes. So we are slowly also integrating being able to separate black plastics to a certain degree, as well as be able to recycle wider pet products and also coloured and tinted pet products for recycling. And how quickly can you move from non-recyclable to recyclable? Yeah, sure. We have a technical advisory committee which draws on people from all around the packaging value cycle, but also academics and researchers. And essentially, if there is a novel solution, then we 
put the evidence to that committee and they advise us as to whether they think that it meets the criteria. We also have expanded into offering a certification service. At the moment, it's just available for plastics packaging, but hopefully we'll be moving into fibre-based packaging very shortly. And that will actually take that piece of packaging and literally put it through testing at MRFs to see whether it is picked out or not, as well as looking at the data on whether councils are likely to accept it. So we can be quite agile if the evidence is available and we work with packaging converters and others to test out novel packaging types. That is great. And one thing that always intrigues me is that uh, coming from continental Europe, you always got the green swoosh around the green dot system. And a lot of people still in the UK feel that's applicable or think, oh, take that as a recycling logo. How do we best tackle that? Because the clearer people are about what is actually being recycled and the more they trust their logos and their labelling, the better really for us. Yes. So there is a lot of confusion about the green dot. A lot of people do associate it with recycling. We've done some consumer insight research where we asked them whether they recognise different symbols, but we also asked them how confident they are that they understand it and then actually asked them to select the right answer from a list. And only one in 10 people have any idea what the green dot means or the Mobius loop for that matter. Whereas three in five people understand what the OPRL labels mean. And that's led to some interesting conversations with government around not just how do we make sure it's a label that UK consumers understand, but also because some of the feedback is, I don't understand this mass of labels and what it's telling me, whether in fact government should be editing some labels off and saying that's not relevant to the UK market, so you shouldn't be using it. So Jane, I understand that you lead a team that's all women, and I'm quite curious about that. I'd be really interested to know a little bit more about the dynamics and about how that works, whether it was intentional, and indeed actually what your plans are for growing and developing your team in the future. So we are slightly accidentally an all-women team. We started out, obviously, with myself, And at that stage, actually, the policy advisor at the BRC, who was the other main person who worked on it, was a man. So we've lost men along the way. So there are now eight of us. We've just taken on a kickstart person, which is fantastic. And she also happens to be a woman, but at 18, a little bit younger than many of the rest of the team. So in terms of diversity, in some ways, we're not very diverse, but in terms of underrepresented groups, we score very well, particularly taking on somebody just starting out on their career, as well as those of us who've been kicking around for rather longer. But we're not averse to recruiting men. It just hasn't worked out that way. I think it's really interesting that you talk about the, you know, sort of the next generation, effectively, that you're bringing in through that scheme because we've had uh, conversations with other colleagues who are at the start of their career and we know that quite a lot of our listeners are in that bracket of sort of first or second job and it's just quite interesting to hear about different organizations who are able to offer new pathways in that are not a university-led 
approach because so often you have to have done at least a degree maybe something in you know beyond that a postgraduate qualification and have work experience and we've been talking to colleagues in this podcast series about actually how that becomes a limiting factor for some people who can't afford to study or who are not motivated or driven to study in that way so can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of career pathway entry opportunity yeah well we've been very keen and actually if it hadn't been for covid i think we would have before now introduced a sort of entry level job and looked at whether it's through a formal apprenticeship or some other means, help people into our sector, which is a very white male sector still. And that's clearly not tapping into the talents that are available to us here in the UK. So one of the things that we're looking at within our benefits package is actually how we would financially support colleagues who are gaining their professional qualifications whilst working with us. We have always had a flexible working policy. In fact, I'm now getting quite nervous that everybody's caught on to this as a good idea and one of our USPs is being eroded, but that's a good thing overall. Most of our staff actually work four days a week might be over different patterns, but at an 80% time because they're combining it with family responsibilities. And I think that just makes it much more accessible and much easier for women in particular, because, you know, care responsibilities do still fall mainly on women, however good younger husbands are these days, or partners. But I think the other thing is we started doing work on the Sustainable Development Goals last summer to provide the framework for what we're doing. And we've identified nine that resonate with us as an organisation. And unsurprisingly, the majority of those are about sustainable consumption, production and environmental issues. But we deliberately chose reducing inequalities, health and well-being and decent jobs as areas that we also wanted to engage in because we thought it spoke to our ethical values as an organisation and the kind of organisation that we wanted to be. And so we are doing work to make sure that we are promoting those things, not just being the people who can tell you about how to label your packaging. And we know that that's so important to people when they're looking for a career pathway. We became a B Corp as Anthesis last year. And I think we realised as part of that process, really how important having alignment between individuals and corporate values and corporate goals are, but also how important putting sustainability at the heart of our business and and at the heart of our mission statement really was in terms of building that sort of trust and loyalty and two-way commitment between the business and colleagues that work with us and similar to you we've been through a pathway also of opening up apprenticeships recently with some really super exciting outcomes that have come as a result of that some brilliant opportunities and some new talent that we wouldn't have been able to access if we didn't have that scheme in place yeah absolutely and I've been a governor at a secondary school here in South London for eight years now and university is not the right pathway for many people so it doesn't make sense and if you look Across Europe, I mean, certainly Germany has a wonderful tradition of using apprenticeships and then degree level apprenticeships to bring people forward into careers who then have often a very sound technical background that a degree wouldn't give you, actually. 
So Jane, just following on from the conversation we were having about the current consultation and the sort of labelling scheme with government, I know you had some other issues that you were hoping to share with us during this conversation. Perhaps this would be a great opportunity for us to jump into some of those. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. One is the insight that whilst young people are passionate about the environment and feel very angry about what it is that we're doing to the planet at the moment, there's a sort of feeling of despair that almost inhibits them taking action. So lots of comments about, I don't think it would make any difference if I did something, I'm not sure what it is I have to do, this side of things. They are changing lifestyles in terms of eating more vegetarian and vegan food, for example, or offsetting their flight associated carbon if they go on holiday. But they're not doing practical things like recycling or reducing food waste. And we really need to engage them more effectively and get them doing those things. The over 55s are doing all of that, have a much greater sense of the sort of possibilities of collective action on these things, I think. And that's what we need to engender. And having that prompt on a label is one of the ways we can do that, but mainly normalising it as behaviour. So when we ask people why they recycle, once they'd said the bit about wanting to do their bit for the environment, the next most common answer was, it's part of my routine. And just making it a habit that we all do and that it's a normal thing to do, I think is really, really important. I think the other thing that we're very clear on is that whilst we have some expertise in this area and we talk to government about how to go about mandatory labelling, there clearly is a debate going on within government about how is the best way to do this, bearing in mind that obviously about 40% of packaging comes in on food that we import into the country. So there are obviously big trade issues involved in this. And we think it's really important that there is not just us as professionals, but but a wider um, packaging professional, sustainability professionals, and indeed the public having a voice on this issue. So we have launched a campaign called hashtag make it easy, which is up on change.org as a petition that people can sign up to and share with their network. So we really encourage people to get engaged in that because I think government need to hear direct from people and not just us as, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? So please do put your signature and your views up on that. So that's hashtag make it easy. Yes. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So sadly, we've reached the end of our discussion today. I hope you found it interesting. I'd like to extend my great thanks to Jane for joining us as our guest speaker today. Thank you and lovely to work with you again. If you have any comments or questions or anything that you've heard today has prompted thoughts for you, please feel free to get in touch with us. Similarly, if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to Anthesis. You can find us on the Anthesis Group website or via email or reach Claudia or myself via LinkedIn. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.